Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Happy 2022, and welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and I'm really excited about this week's episode with Mark Garagos, a renowned trial lawyer from Los Angeles. And we're going to be using the Susan McDougal trials as a jumping off point to talk about just trials in general and trial strategy. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Just for some background, Susan McDougal was part of the Whitewater investigation back in the Clinton days. And you remember Ken Starr, independent counsel Ken Starr, tried to get her to testify against Clinton in the grand jury. She refused. She said Ken Starr was trying to get her to lie about Bill Clinton. And he charged her. You're going to also hear that it before that trial in Little Rock, before that obstruction trial uh, regarding the grand jury, that she was also charged in Santa Monica with embezzlement regarding a famous conductor named Zubin Mehta and his wife, Nancy. And McDougal was charged with stealing $50,000 when she worked for them and lived with them. And this trial was a minor state court $50,000 embezzlement trial, but it lasted 15 weeks, can you imagine? And most people, including Garrigo, said it had to do with Ken Starr and using that trial as a hammer to try to get McDougal to uh, work something out, get that case dropped and work something out in the Little Rock case. They were using that state court $50,000 case as a as a leverage, as a way to get her to try to plead. But she refused. She went to trial with Garagos in that 15-week trial in Santa Monica in state court. She was acquitted of that trial and then headed over to Little Rock for her big fight with Ken Starr. And you're going to hear about those proceedings during this podcast. You might be thinking to yourself, no way would a prosecutor use another case to try to bully someone into pleading guilty. But prosecutors use those kinds of tactics all of the time. In fact, I just had a trial at the end of December in which a client was charged with an environmental crime. It was a total BS case. And the prosecutor said, if you don't uh, take a deal and pay a huge fine, we're going to add more charges to the to the uh, indictment. And the client, to his credit, had the courage to say, I'm not going to be bullied into pleading guilty. I didn't do anything wrong, fought the case, went to trial and was acquitted by a jury. But these kinds of threats, these kinds of bullying tactics are used by prosecutors all the time. It's one of the reasons we have so few trials. Less than 3% of cases now go to trial. In the 80s, 20% of cases went to trial. And people like Susan McDougall, who had the courage to fight two different cases, one in state court in Santa Monica and one in federal court in Little Rock, who had a great lawyer like Mark Garagos, And we'll talk to him in For the Defense next. I'm really excited today. I have Mark Garagos, the well-known, awesome criminal defense lawyer uh, from out west. And we're going to talk about one of the great cases, the Susan McDougall. There's actually two cases uh, back in the 90s. He's also a fellow podcaster, which I love, uh, the Reasonable Doubt podcast, which is awesome. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. It's always good to be on yet another podcast. I'll tell you, uh, lawyers are really taking over podcasting. My partner, Ben, 
And uh, my buddy, Mike Popak, have got a, um, a legal AF podcast. Adam Carolla, as you mentioned, and I have got uh, Reasonable Doubt and Beyond Reasonable Doubt. By the way, I'm going to give ourselves a little plug. We were the OGs. Adam is the, <laughs> pod, is the pod father of podcasting, most downloaded ever. And our legal one uh, is now routinely top 20 uh, um podcasts in the world and uh aba is ranked at top five uh consistently year after year so no, podcasting people, seems to be the wave of the future and people should listen to it it's it's a lot of fun this one and and i think we'll have fun with it is trying to get in depth on uh really well-known trials fascinating trials and so i like the susan mcdougall case because you know captivated everybody at the time. Of course, everybody was focused on the Little Rock case, but it, the first case that you tried was, was in California on a state right. theft case. How did you get involved in that case? Well, I'll tell you, the interesting thing was, I, that was one of the only times in my career I was defending four women, uh, separate women, obviously, all charged with murder, who were in custody in the what was then the Sybil Brand uh, jail. Sybil Brand was a um, well-known philanthropist in the this poor decrepit jail that the with they housed the women on across from Cal State uh, L.A. Uh, was named after her uh, uh, quite ignominiously. But yeah, anyway, it was it was an awful place that had just kind of degenerated into. Um, uh, one of your worst nightmares. It wouldn't even, you couldn't even do it justice in one of those uh, B-level movies. Anyway, they were all on what was, what we affectionately, the women called murderers row. Susan had refused to testify for the independent counsel, was taken into custody under uh, contempt. And there, this case in California had pre-existed. And it was an embezzlement case and was not known as the McDougal case originally. It was right. um, kind of referred to offhand as the Meta case. Zubin Meta was a well-known uh, international uh, music composer. His wife, Nancy Meta, was a um, was a kind of aspiring or B-level uh, movie actress. And Susan had worked for them in the early 90s, I believe, as a kind of a bookkeeper attache to, to um, Nancy. So after Susan had left, they had made reports uh, and our defense ultimately at the case was that Nancy was spending in the way that when Zubin, after Susan left, the Zubin, when Zubin confronted her with the spending, they blamed the spending on Susan McDougall, got somebody to file a criminal case. There was a warrant out when she went into custody uh, for the contempt, they brought her out to California. But she really was of not, um, she wasn't in the forefront at that uh, point. But there is an iconic picture of her wearing a mini skirt coming out of the um, uh, courthouse in Little Rock with uh, chains on her and uh, handcuffs. And so anyway, she came out here, they put her on murderer's row. I always believe that the reason that she was brought out here was a little bit of uh, try to give her some geographic. Um, the diesel uh, therapy. The, the, exactly. Kind of crusher, right? Exactly right. I couldn't have put it better myself. And we later learned that 
they were monitoring her phone calls when she was at Carswell, the federal facility. And she had told her mother in one of these monitor phone calls that she enjoyed it there. And that was probably the worst thing she could have said because they said, okay, she's never going to crack unless we ship her out to LA. And that's what they did. And they put her on murderer's row at the Sybil brand. All of my other clients were telling her they had to see me. They had to, she had to retain me because she had no lawyer. And so I was called. I went down there. I saw her. We had a wonderful conversation. And uh, the next day, she decided she wanted to hire me. And I thought it was because of my brilliance or the uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the captivating uh, stories that my other clients were telling me. She later told me it was because she liked my shoots. So <laughs> That's great. Just goes kind of shows you well, the things that clients are impressed with. You know, right? it's funny because when when I first started in private practice, um, I was a PD and I and I left in the private practice and I had a lot of people at the FDC down in here in Miami. They were my greatest uh, marketing tool of of getting clients. That you know, they would pass my card out. It was a wonderful way to get to get cases. Um, well, originally when I started like you, um, the look, I started 83. Nobody's going to hire some punk out of law school who just started. So unfortunately it's the indigent who uh, end up being your, uh, your, your first uh, victims. Uh, and, <laughs> right. and so I did nothing but indigent defense court appointed for two years, but mm-hmm. it was great. I loved it. You could where else could you get trial experience right out of the box? Even as a prosecutor, you couldn't do it because you can only, you know, they make you go through training, things of that nature, indigent defense. You go in immediately and you start going in real cases. Um, yeah. Real cases, heavy duty felony cases and you learn and and it's one of the great experiences of uh, of my life actually i um i uh, remember though when i first um kind of questioned whether it made any sense because i had a i was kind of growing into a family married and having kids and i remember once i had finished a two-day preliminary hearing and the judge had you know, I'd submitted my hours. I don't know whatever it was in the preparation. I got a check for I think two hundred and fifty bucks from the judge. He thought that's what I was worth. For two days <laughs> I walked in my father's office, who was my partner, and I said, "You know, if somebody came in here and said we'll give you two hundred and fifty bucks to defend this serious felony through a probable cause proceeding. What would you tell him?" And uh, I won't quote it as I'm sure you're. This is a clean show, so I will tell you though that that was when I started to doubt whether to do it. In fact, we went from there. I stopped doing what we call it 987 in the state because that's the penal code section. Right. And I started saying if a judge wanted to appoint me, I just said, I'd rather just do it pro bono. I don't know. By the time you fill out the paperwork, try and keep your hours and everything else, it was more aggravation than it was worth. It's so true. You know, you you followed your dad around. My dad was a lawyer too for, for 50 years. I followed him around. I, I learned uh, watching him for for folks who don't have you know that built in mentor, uh, what do you recommend in terms of like what books to read, what podcasts to listen? You know, how do you get the the trial? I'll tell you trials? a couple of things, and yeah. I I I tell this story often. I'll tell it to your audience. I I followed my father around during the summer. I just thought it was the greatest job in the world. Where else could you get up talk? And then have a two-hour lunch, and then you know go home, go home at four or five o'clock. That's when they're a prosecutor. Right. And I remember vividly going to the Glendale courthouse at one point, and he was, and I must have been twelve or thirteen, and I'm watching him argue as a prosecutor to put some poor seventeen or eighteen-year-old into state prison for eighteen months 
for being in a place where marijuana was smoked. Not for smoking marijuana, but for being in a place. In the, in the 60s and 70s, that was a thing in California, at least until 70. And I remember when we're driving home, I was just astonished. At it. It was, how can you do that? How can you live with yourself? You just ruined this kid's life. Blah, blah, blah. Within four or five months, he retired from the office and went to private practice. I, my whole life, up until 10 years ago, I thought I had made this passionate speech. I had convinced him to leave the office and do the right thing and become a criminal defense lawyer. And I tell this story, and my mother, 10 years ago, pulls me aside after and she goes, you think that's so cute that you had some impact on him? She says, it wasn't that. I told him, you got three kids that are entering high school. They're going to be in college in four years. You need to go out and make some goddamn <laughs> money great. in order to pay for college. <laughs> I said, okay, mom, thanks a lot. Burst my bubble. That's great. Great story. So so let's, let's go back to McDougal for a second. So you get in this case. Um, immediately you start using the press, which a lot of uh, criminal defense lawyers are always afraid to do, but it was it was really important. I remember back in the day seeing her um, on Larry King in, in her pink jumpsuit. Um, what was the decision making there to, well, to put her on Larry King and use that, that kind of press? This was, you know, they, the Office of Independent Counsel, then headed by Ken Starr, who has gained, um, you know, I mean, what an illustrious career. He went from Solicitor General to Office of Independent Counsel to kind of the pursuer of Bill Clinton um, at the Office of Independent Counsel. Then left, became the, I think he was the dean at Pepperdine Law School here right. in LA. Got then he became, then he went to Baylor and left right. Baylor after a while. And then he was on Trump's defense team and Epstein's defense team. And so quite a, a career. Yeah. But uh, the Susan was of the mind that they had basically killed her husband. Her husband, the Jim McDougal, had started to, not started to, but after the conviction in Little Rock, the original one, I didn't represent her then, but she and her husband were tried, I believe, with the then governor, right. the ex-governor of Arkansas, Jim Guy Tucker, and convicted, and Jim cooperated and told Susan, he wanted Susan to. And Susan said, why are you going to cooperate? And he says, because I don't want to die in prison. I mean, you know, I'm an, I'm, it was a May-September romance. Um, the ultimate irony was he did die in prison, even after cooperating. But he apparently, by all accounts, was making stuff up. Susan re re really was offended by that, rightfully so. And she was not going to be deterred. She was going to call him like she could see him. They wanted her to sing from a script written by the independent counsel, which was basically to get Bill and Hillary Clinton and focused uh, really like a laser on Hillary Clinton. So... But the problem was we had to, and when I took this case, I looked at the police reports and I said, I remember telling anybody who would listen, this case is, you know, complete BS. The, the DA's office will give me a misdemeanor tax count and I'll be done. Of course. And um, well, uh, five months later or a year later and 15 weeks of trial, if you can believe that. And I'm commuting to Santa Monica from my house, which is, if you know LA traffic, it's two hours in each direction. It's so it's insane. And by the way, for no money, um, we end up trying the case and we get an acquittal across the board, 15 counts or 12 counts, whatever it was. I think the judge kicked three of the counts. And so we won that case. And that was important because if she had been convicted of theft offenses, she would have had no credibility and could not have continued to kind of be a spokesperson for 
uh, what the an out of control independent counsel who was pursuing Bill Clinton to re re right. basically rejigger the election. So so let me keep you on the 15 weeks because that jumped out at me when I was preparing for this 15 week trial on a theft case. I mean, in Miami, that would be a two or three day trial, um, 15 weeks of going back and forth. I mean, you're a young lawyer. How do you set your practice on hold for no money? Well, I have a I had a I had a dear friend. Mind you, no money. I keep saying it. I had a dear friend who let my my wife and kids live on their in their guest house over the garage during this kind of five month, uh, you know, because there was a run up to it, 15 weeks. And, yeah. Um, and he was kind enough. In fact, I just saw the pictures, coincidentally enough, of my son, who was then quite a young age, um, playing um, with this ex high school teacher of mine at his property. And they were they were extremely generous. His wife was magnanimous and let us live there. And basically, I that's how we survived while I did this thing because it was uh, it was quite a quite a ordeal to say the least. Now I also read that every morning you ran five miles. You're a vegetarian, uh, you know, and and uh, that was then. I've become kind of paleo since then. <laughs> I don't run anymore, but every morning I'm in the gym. So uh, that's. I mean, when I'm in trial, I, I can't function other than the case. Like I, I don't know how you were running every morning or go to the gym and and stayed on that kind of diet. That's insane. I've got a, uh, a private eye who works for me who I actually met at the gym and he's got a line that I just love. He says, it's my therapy. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's the, you know, the running with the endorphins for, I did it for 20 years until the body says you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and now I, I, I walk, you know, you, if you saw me in my hometown, I'm one of those weird old men who walks constantly for hours in the morning and I stop at the gym. And I just, if I didn't do that, I don't think I'd be here today. See, it's the one, it's the time to get, you can reflect. It's the time you can think. It's the time that you can sort stuff out. I can't tell you how often I do my arguments while walking and, and at the gym. So you're, you're doing voir dire in the state case. How different is the state voir dire process than doing it in Little Rock and federal court? I mean, when I practice mostly in federal court. We're lucky if we get 10 minutes to do voir dire and question the jurors. Did you get a lot of voir dire in your state case? State case, absolutely. Back yeah. then, there's been kind of a uh, cycle in California. I mean, there was, you had originally, when I first started, you had something called Hovey Vordire in death penalty cases mm -hmm. where you could, you did it individually. Each juror came in, right. I got to question him, uh, you know, coincidentally in the Peterson case, 20 years after that, I convinced the judge to give me Hovey Vordire, but he used the wrong standard in that case. And Peterson got reversed by the uh, unanimously uh, last year by the California Supreme Court because he used the wrong standard. And I kept telling him, you know, you give it and you take it away. But I had a judge, uh, less light in the Santa Monica court, who was one of the oldest serving judges in an XDA. And um, he believed in old school and he let us more dire, but he would interrupt. He would get in the middle. But um, if I, you have enough time, as you probably know, with Vordire, you can really, it's more jury deselection. I was more worried about um, who was trying to get on there to serve an agenda or be stealth and uh, uh, contrast that with the federal case, which was about, I don't know, six months later in Little Rock, we got questionnaires. And that, to me, if you give me a questionnaire, I don't need that much for a dire. 
I, I, I really can sort it out from the questionnaire and see if you've got the targeted questions and you know pretty quickly um, how you're going to how you're going to deal with it. I will tell you a story from the uh, Little Rock case. We go back there also on zero money. And um, this is in the 90s. So the Internet is not really a thing. But we had a. Um, a fundraising campaign to pay for costs for the hotel and for we wanted experts we couldn't afford them 1-800-STOP-STARS was our ah, kind of motto that's and, great um, yeah so that would raised, be stopstar.com or something like yeah, that exactly, back then exactly. we had the and now we would have raised a heck of a lot more money oh, back oh then you know you'd raise ten thousand dollars in a month to pay for hotels and and things and you thought you had uh, died and gone to heaven no now i mean can you imagine you you would raise oh, i mean add probably. a couple of zeros to that Exactly. So, so, so in the Little Rock case, I saw that the government called some of the prosecutors to try to prove up the contempt uh, charge. And you, you get to cross them, of course. Uh, and which, it was, let me tell you how much fun this was. I can't I believe mean, we, they're calling prosecutors to, to describe how fair they want to be. And I remember one guy, and I won't name him because he, he doesn't need it, but he gets up there and he's talking about how he really wanted to exonerate Bill Clinton. And I'm just laughing. I mean, dude, you can't, who are you kidding? And he starts to tell this story about how Ken Starr and he are watching college basketball and they were rooting for Arkansas, who had played or won the national championship, I think, in, in college basketball. Pat Harris, who was my, who was Susan's fiance at the time and was my, um, even though he wasn't admitted, he was my co-counsel, um, uh, practical. He kind of whispers to me or hands me a post-it note, says, ask him who they were playing. Ah. I, said, I said, who was Arkansas playing? He goes, Duke. And, he, and then Pat goes, Ask him where Ken Starr graduated from. I asked him, what's Ken Starr's alum? He goes, Duke. I mean, the first, the three jurors in the front who were obviously basketball fans are dying of laughter. Like, so really, great. you believe that? So then I said, okay, they're going to call prosecutors. I'm going to call prosecutors. I called the head of the Little Rock Office of Independent Counsel. He's my first witness, Hugh uh, Hickman Ewing. And I started asking him questions. And he's, I don't know, I don't remember, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, by the way, didn't you say that uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, was evasive in the grand jury? And that's why you thought there was a suspicion? He goes, yeah. And I said, and was it because she said, I don't remember when she was being asked questions 60 times? He says, yeah. And I said, by my count, you're at 120 or something right now. <laughs> then I, then I got him to admit. And I, I, for you young lawyers, you should never do this. But I did it. I, I had a papers here. And after I had kind of whacked him a couple of times, and obviously he thought I had more than I did, I said, and isn't it true you had a draft indictment of Hillary Clinton in your drawer? And he goes, well, yeah, but I never, I, we didn't use her or something like that. It was like a scene out of one of those old movies because they, you know, there was no cell phones in the corner. All the reporters in the back went running out <laughs> to find a payphone. You know, Hillary Clinton, a draft indictment. So wait, you pretended and, that you had the draft? Is that what uh, you yeah, did? Well, he might have thought that from the way I had the papers rolled up in my hand, a la John Wooden. I'm, I'm not going to say. Um, but I will tell you, one of the great things about that case, which, uh, which I kind of cemented for me, the fact that this was a political show trial of hers, um, of Susan's was when we had done the jury selection, you know, the office of independent counsel, we later learned had 130,000 or something like that for jury consultants. We had 
I don't know if I've mentioned this. Zero. Um, <laughs> no jury Pat, consultant. Yeah. Pat had the bright idea of going down to the registrar and getting the political affiliations, how often they voted in the elections, Democrat or Republican. So we had that. And we were able to get seven Democrats on the jury, five Republicans. Now, they had charged her, indicted her on three counts. One count was obstruction of justice, which requires a mental element, um, a scienter of um, that. And the jury instruction had an element of, did she believe it was a just investigation? Something along those lines. Well, and then two, yeah. Yeah, two counts of criminal contempt, which really were, was there a lawful order? Did you refuse to testify? You're off to the races if you're the prosecutor. Well, because of the, because they overcharged it and indicted on the obstruction of justice, I got to put on all kinds of evidence as to the justification for this investigation. So great. And they acquitted the whole entire jury found not guilty on the obstruction of justice and hung seven to five on the two criminal contempts. <laughs> and you can guess who the seven and the five. Right. Were. Of course. And of course. this is where your client can can get mad at you. We went out onto the steps of the courthouse and somebody and I was obviously intoxicated by the verdict, not yet intoxicated by uh, the after party. But uh, um, I was asked by some intrepid reporter, uh, do you think Ken Starr will, you know, will retry her on the criminal contempt? And I flippantly and regrettably said he doesn't have the balls. And I think Susan, I still have a <laughs> sore rib from Susan elbowing me, like enough. That's enough. great. That's great. All right. But before we get to the celebration, the verdict. So, so I see you, you call the prosecutors. You got one of the prosecutors to say that he had to work to develop the witness. And, and one of the jurors after trial said you can develop an antidote or a vaccine, but not a witness, which I thought was just such a great, uh, a great quote. I also saw, by the way, that Susan testified, of course, in the Little Rock case, uh, up until that point, one of the big things was, of course, she stayed quiet. So, so how does that decision get made? Is it was she always going to testify in the case? No, but I think at that point she was so, you know, Santa Monica was extremely hard on her. I mean, it was an outrageous prosecution. They were yeah. trying. I mean, it was character assassination, as you know. That that's normally what happens in any criminal case. Is you try to demonize the the, the accused and make them out to be the worst thing and and basically not human. I mean, obviously, if you're doing criminal defense, your your first and foremost commandment is is to humanize your client Absolutely. because the prosecution does nothing but dehumanize. So she really had a rough time of it and rightfully so in Santa Monica. And she wanted to tell her story. And um, I'll never forget I, I might have quipped to the jury because she would give some long answers. And, and I think I stood up at one point and said something like, and can you believe people think that, you know, that you don't want to talk? Because <laughs> Well, I saw I saw once that the the prosecutors objected to some of her testimony. And, and you said something like, hey, I thought you guys wanted her to, to hear from her. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I had this, I mean, he's, he's also passed away. It seems like all my judges pass away. Um, I George Howard, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, um, and I, he wasn't buying much of what we were selling initially, but as the case wore on and as the cross-examination kind of revealed what was really happening down here and that it was politically motivated, he kind of came, my view was he kind of came around to this and, um, and uh, gave us ultimately at the end 
Um, I mean, I was very angry during the jury, the charging, the jury charging sections, because I felt like we were getting cut off at our knees. But he did give me a couple of instructions that gave me enough in the closing. As long as you have a hook, uh, you know, that that's all you need. The other thing I say is stay out of my cross. If a guy stays out of my cross, I'm, I, I can put up with almost anything else. Just stay out of the cross. I, mean, yeah. let me, I, I do not understand. I just finished a, um, a one-week kind of bench trial in federal court last week. And um, I was, I'm, I'm always amazed. The prosecutor was objecting to things that are fair game on cross. And it's like, Stay out of my cross. That would be my, I mean, maybe when I die, they'll put that on my uh, tombstone. Just it's also weird in, in a bench trial where, where you know. Exactly <laughs> what I said. Everybody's going to I'm going to poison the judge. He can sort this out. Right, right. No, that's, that's, that's nuts. You know, one of the questions that, that we always get as criminal defense lawyers at the cocktail party is like, how do you represent those people? And, I, when, you know, as I was reading for this case, I saw one of your old quotes, which I loved. Uh, which is, I don't judge my clients. By the time they come to me, they're already in a jam. If they want someone to judge them, they've got a priest or a rabbi. Most people who come into me have beaten themselves up so badly already. The last thing they need is for me to go back and beat them up some more. I love that quote, Mark. Um, well, you know, I tell, also tell the story. In, in college, my junior year, there was a professor who I, I was just intellectually fascinated by. And he, um, he, I think my senior year got a plum assignment either at Harvard or Yale to run the divinity school. And I had taken him for philosophy of religion and, and some, uh, some other related classes. And I was going to follow him um, and go to divinity school. And I talked to my, um, the archbishop of the Armenian church who at the time, and I was telling him that, and he talked me out of it. He said, no, we need lawyers in the community more than we need more priests. And so I went in that direction. And I've always told clients, and that's where this quote comes from, look, I'm not here to judge you. If I Maybe if, um, if I had gone in the other career direction after college, uh, we'd be having a different conversation. But no, I mean, it's part of this dehumanization that the media does and that the prosecution does. And Part of the complaint I've had of this symbiotic relationship traditionally between the media and the prosecution. You know, one of my complaints, related complaints about gag orders. I mean, gag orders originally, if you go back to Shepard versus Maxwell, were intended to protect the defendant. Well, somewhere along the line since the 50s, the script flipped and it was to protect the prosecution and to inhibit the defense. It's you know, so they true. always love to have, you have a prosecutor and you, I mean, how many times have you seen one of those press conferences? They've got all the evidence laid out and we found our man and blah, blah, blah. And then if you want to respond, they run in and say, judge, he's polluting the uh, jury pool. Get uh, Shut it him down. It drives me bananas. And it happens all the time. I mean, you know, you're right. It's one of the, it's, it, it was, uh, we talked to Lee Bailey before he died about about Lee. Maxwell. Lee was the one on Shepherd versus oh, Maxwell. Maxwell. I used to, I you know, before he passed, he used to come down to national trial lawyers every year. 
And we had this kind of serial conversation about how in 50 or 60 years, the prosecution had just flipped the U.S. Supreme Court to the point now where Shepard versus Maxwell is quaint and completely irrelevant to what happens in the criminal justice. It's so true. It's so true. By the way, I looked at the closings. I was able to get some quotes from the closings from McDougal and Little Rock. And I thought the prosecutor's theme was so bad. Um, one of the themes they start out with is, is they said uh, McDougal thought she was in Burger King and could have it her way. I mean, were they, were they serious? I mean, that's horrible. Just really bad. I, I liked the two prosecutors, Mark Barrett and um, Julie Myers. Julie ended up becoming head of ICE after that, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the old uh, predecessor to right. whatever the acronym is now. <laughs> yeah. And um, I... I actually enjoyed them, but they, I I think they would admit, they despised my client. I mean, absolutely despised my client. And, and, And I don't think Susan liked the fact that I was, you know, on good terms with them, but I never understood what they were doing. I never understood the, to me, the, um, you have to be either authentic or at least transparent. And I just, I just think the prosecution um, in both cases was not. I think it was obvious that there were other motivations driving this, which I think was apparent to jurors in both locations. Right. And, and of course, it was, it was Ken Starr, who was a central feature of your case and of closing. They didn't mention Ken Starr in their three and a half hours, which is insane. Um, and, and of course, it was a big feature of yours. And you had a big blow up, I think, of Ken Starr. Uh, yeah, you we had a... I mean, you know, there was also another kind of seminal moment was there was um, a woman who was the ex-first lady of um, Arkansas. And I called her as a character witness for Susan because Susan had lived in her guest house and had known her. And she was this elegant Southern belle throwback to a different generation. And I put her on the stand and I had her testify as Susan's character. We go into a um, uh, a break, and she comes back, and she's I can see she's uh, she's a little shook, and she tells me why, and I said that's fine. Get get back on the stand. I said, Your Honor, I know I we had broken. I said I had no more questions. I have one more question. I said, uh, Miss Riley, we just took a break. Did you talk to the prosecution over here? She said, I I sure did. I said, What did they ask you? She said. They asked me if I had slept with Bill Clinton. Oh my! God. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. Was, you know, it's unbelievable. It's just like, I mean, who, who could? How could you ask for that? You can't I make mean, that up. You can't make it up. You couldn't program it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't see it coming. And uh, you know, I. Uh, I uh, Great. I'll leave it so, at that. so I see. I also loved in the closing when you said, "Listen, if she wanted to lie." Uh, she could have easily lied about Clinton, got out and uh, sold zillions of books. I, I thought that was such a great point. Um, did, well, did they she, have any response to that? Or No. I yeah. mean, the whole thing was just, yeah. as, as you know, in a courtroom, one of the reasons I love courtrooms is the, the give and take, especially if there's a, somebody who knows what they're doing with cross-examination. A, you can discover truth. One of the, ironically, one of the things about, the last two years, roughly, that has um, made me crazy is our whole experience with COVID and so-called experts, Mm -hmm. where I have taken the position, 
I would love to get one of these experts on the stand and just have a half an hour to cross because they wouldn't last. They wouldn't stand up. It's it's all kind of science by Braille. See, I thought um, you were going to say something different. I thought you were going to say the last couple of years has driven you crazy because there's been no trials. We've been sitting doing these Zooms all for for the last couple of years. I I have gone crazy because of that. But um, the I have a buddy judge. Uh, who I who forced me against my will to do a Zoom preliminary hearing? Oh, yeah, and I I I was adamantly against it. After it was over, I kind of I didn't I didn't quite mind it. In fact, the the bench trial I did, we live streamed some witnesses from oh. overseas, yeah. and the two of them were atrocious. One of the live witnesses was atrocious for the prosecution as well. But I mean, all in all, they were they they. It was funny. One of the witnesses had his glasses on. It was obvious he was looking at something. And at one point, one of my sharp young associates said, he's looking at a computer laptop. And sure enough, I busted him on that. You could see him. Yeah, stuff like that. You never would have had if he were on the stand live. Right. So, so I know we're we're running out of time. So, just a little. We bit are, more. and I I apologize. All my fault. No, um, I, I want to just get to two last things. One is the deliberations where a juror comes running in and says that that they had a law book written by one of the former justices. And, and so h- how does that play out? Because I guess the, the prosecutors start going after the, the Supreme Court justice and it turns out to be a bunch of nothing, right? Yeah, that was exactly what it was. And I said, now you know how this um, inquisition has been going because they they tried to blame, as I remember, I could be wrong on this, but my memory is, is they started, they wanted to do an investigation of this Supreme Court justice, who, by the way, if they had just thought about it for 30 seconds, they would have realized that the federal district court judge used to be on the Arkansas Supreme Court and maybe had some familiarity with this other guy. But obviously, nobody, you know, the neurons aren't firing, I don't think. And, and, Ultimately, at the end of the day, it was a lot of nothing. I mean, it was, but you know, I will tell you, there was a Julie Myers I mentioned went to ICE. You know, who was, I don't know, fourth or fifth chair down there, Rod Rosenstein, who uh, ended up in the, um, in the Trump um, uh, DOJ. Rod was down there. And, um, uh, and then also Brett Kavanaugh, um, uh, you know, the uh, now Supreme, Court, Supreme Justice. Court Justice got his start in the Office of Independent Counsel as well. So, Mark, you win the case. This is the second, you know, Susan McDougal not guilty. You walk out with her. Is she is she released? And and uh, she'd what? been released on a back then. Uh, you could make a Rule Thirty Five. The defense could. A rule 35 is a post-conviction motion. Now it has to be the prosecution. Right. That. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the defense could do it. I, yeah. I'm also old enough to remember third-party cooperation. I mean, some of the things <laughs> I talk about, people look at me and they have, what are you talking about? Right. You know? right. like, I, so anyway, I had gotten her release um, on with some conditions on a rule 35 before the trial. Uh, However, she had conditions on her and we got those conditions removed. She's released, but she went out. You may have a picture of it. She went out in the, um, at one point, I think it was after the rule 35 in her orange jumpsuit. We just had her and so on the courthouse steps. Where's the big celebration when you win the second down case? at the uh, Capitol hotel. I had a, the back room and, um, and that was my favorite place back then. You could not only drink in the hotel, 
having come from Utah, I'm very tuned to this, uh, but you could smoke cigars. So it was quite a, a throwback. I bet you that was, uh, that was, it was quite a celebration. I, 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 uh, I think I ended up with two reporters and Susan's brother and, and a buddy of mine, Rick Coleman. I think we watched the sunrise playing billiards at some dive bar somewhere in Little Rock. It was one of the great evenings. I won't name the one reporter. She's gone on to, to great heights. So I'll keep her, I'll keep, I'll go to my grave with that. <laughs> you know, it's too bad we don't savor those wins more. I feel like we, we celebrate the night or two and then we're on to the next case. This is something I talk about a lot on the podcast. Like the, the wins don't stay with us as long as the losses do, at least for me. The losses, the losses eat you alive. I mean, that's right? the, the wins you just go next. Uh, but the, the law, I've got a friend uh, who's a bit older than me. He's been practicing for 50 years. And he always says, just next, just, uh, I cannot get past a loss. I, I live with the loss for, for years. And so eventually I've been fortunate two of the, the, you know, Peterson being one, and there was another murder case I had that just ate me alive. And that just finally got reversed. Um, after about 10 years. So I've got a clean slate. No client who I've ever tried the case has ever been convicted of first degree murder. So amen. Um, well, that's yeah, a good place um, to end. So, right. so Mark, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we've been trying to schedule for a while. So I appreciate you working with me. And, and this was a lot of fun to talk to one of the great criminal defense lawyers. So I appreciate it. Thank you. That was a lot of fun talking to Mark Garagos, a true trial lawyer who's tried so many important and big cases over the years. But more than that, he's also just a super nice guy, as you could tell from the interview. And when he mentioned that, you know, he got along with the prosecutors, the prosecutors were quoted after the trial that they liked Mark, they just couldn't stand McDougal. It's rare to see quotes like that from federal prosecutors after losing a trial, but, you know, it just goes to how Mark connects with the jury. If he can get prosecutors in a federal trial to like him, imagine what he can do with jurors. And it speaks to uh, an amazing, amazing result, getting not guilties in both state and federal court. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Next week, we have a really interesting one with Juanita Brooks talking about uh, John DeLorean. We'll air that in two weeks' time, not one week. And before we go, I have uh, some clips from the first trial, the Santa Monica trial, where the jury found Susan McDougal not guilty, and then some comments by McDougal and Garagos after. So, Check it out, and thanks again for listening. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Susan McDougall, not guilty of the crime of grand theft of personal property. Failure to file income tax in violation of revenue and taxation I know that they wanted to exert pressure. They have done it for the last years of my life has been about Bill Clinton. Everything that's happened to me has been so that I would tell some story that was not the truth about Bill or Hillary Clinton. And it starts again in February of this next year. When people say to me, you know, are you scared of Ken Starr? I always think he better be scared of me because I'm on my way back. There's a, there's a reason why this case languished for five years, and then the day after she was released, 
he insists that he wants to go to trial. There's a reason why the independent counsel wanted the case in Arkansas to be continued after this one and wanted this case to last because they wanted to get a conviction.